with us this morning. Um, so let's just jump right into this, because for me, success in this church has never been measured by uh, how many people are in the building, how big the budget gets, um, those kind of things that can be good things to watch and indicators of some things, but, but it's ultimately those things are up to God and uh, how he works through us as we are obedient to what he calls us to do. But I'm, what I like is to actually look and see are, are people actually living out what they know to be true doing what Scripture teaches. Uh, and so I hope this morning that our hearts are open and that our minds are open and that we take the information allow Christ through the Holy Spirit to move us and change us as we learn and apply to our lives what we learn. So some fun stuff at the beginning just because this is what preachers are supposed to do, so I throw it in there. So just get your minds thinking because I know most of you, uh, my nephew just arrived and got a cup of coffee, so I know his brain isn't working yet. So I um, want to just throw this out there to get you thinking, a little historical journey with you. Does that sound okay? Gosh, guys, come on. Okay. All right. So first up, a historical journey. Check out this picture, this this bottle. Well, whoa. It didn't turn out good with a black background, did it? Just go ahead and go to the next one. Well, actually, go back to that. Some of you know that little silhouette anyway, don't you? Right? You can just recognize even that, knowing there's, there's something there. You go to the next one. There's no writing on that, but you know what that is, right? What is that? Right? How many of you had a, my mom's father, my grandfather on my mom's side would call this a dope, right? It's going to teach you northern folks how to, how to talk this morning. It's a little Appalachian American language, okay? And so, and they'd call a bag a, a poke, right? Put that dope in a poke, right? Hand it to me, right? So that, that's nice to learn some of that stuff this morning. Coke. But you recognize it just like that. Like our brains are just, it just it's such a widely known thing, probably even in Germany, probably even in different parts of the world. Um, over in Kuwait, they probably had, there was Coke. When I go to Honduras, there's, there's Coke like on every corner. Like, really? Um, it's just that way. Um, then next, like, the, like when we go to Honduras, here's the next picture. That's the hillside in Honduras. That actually, last time I went, that was gone. I was kind of sad, happy sad. But um, what's interesting is instead of Hollywood on the side of the hill like we have out in California, they have Coca-Cola, big letters. Yeah, and then up above, thankfully it's up above Coca-Cola, is a statue of Jesus ascending into heaven. So just getting out of there. So I don't know. Uh, but... But that's it's beautiful when you go up there to that statue. It's really cool, though. But um, Jesus is up there and taken off to heaven. Um, but that's that's how well known around the world these things have become with modern technology, phones. Um, anybody know where who invented Coke? Any like history buffs? I know if this was some TV show, there's some of you guys would be like Andy Griffith. Do what? He was, he's an Atlanta guy, born in Atlanta. 
from Atlanta, Georgia. He was a chemist named George Pemberton. And it was in 1886, he created this product known as Coca-Cola in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, of course, you probably know why it was called that originally, right? And why it was referred to as a dope, right? Literally. But there's an interesting phenomenon that has happened between 1886 to now. Coca-Cola is the second most... There's New studies have come out, and so it's like arguably... I'll just throw some of these top ones out there, but it was at one time, Coke was the second most recognized symbol, that logo, the bottle, in, in the whole world, okay? Lots of studies out there put Apple as rising quickly. You go to Honduras even, and in every little village, there's people running around with a phone. Um, it's pretty amazing how that works. Um, Nike. Apple has surpassed Nike, they say, in the swoosh. Uh, then McDonald's, the Golden Arches, like around the world, people go, Golden Arches, McDonald's, right? But, but Coke's number two. So that's not bad for sugar water, right? They've done pretty good selling us all sugar water and corn syrup, right? That's pretty impressive. Now, at Coca-Cola, their mission, it's interesting, they're very intentional, and their goal, their marketing statement is this, is we want to put a Coke within arm's reach of every person on the planet. And they're close. I mean, that's, that's the goal, to have a Coke within arm re arm's reach of everyone on the planet. Um, I know you can get one in Central America and America pretty easily. Now, um, the reason I tell you this and make all those statements is because all that's, notice I said Coke's the second most recognized symbol in all the world. And you can probably figure out where I'm going because um, I want to point to number one, as great as we think all those things are. Because there's one symbol far greater than Coca-Cola, Apple, McDonald's, all those things. Even if studies didn't think so, we understand what the Bible says, and it is. But it's true that this picture, you can see that little silhouette there at the bottom, the cross is the most recognized symbol in the world. People know what that's referring to uh, all over the world. Um, you've seen it on buildings, steeples, seen it in hospitals. Some of you may have something like that hanging in your home, wearing it around your neck. You see it everywhere. We've seen it, but, but here's my point. There's a, there's a cross. The deal about this is there's a cross available to all of us at all times and it has great applications to our life, okay? So let's understand the history and the story behind this symbol like we do about so many other things. So um, this the symbol of the cross isn't like trademarked like Coca-Cola or any of those things. It's not reserved for the church, licensed to religious institutions. It's, it's, um, it's amazing the implications of it for us if we understand its meaning. So um, let me help you with it by asking this. Has there ever been a time in your life, you know preachers ask these questions because we know the answer already, right? Has there ever been a time in your life when someone has done you wrong? Right? Has there ever been a time in your life when somebody lied about you, they cheated you, 
they misrepresented you, harmed your reputation, tried to destroy your reputation, broke the trust in the relationship. Something happened. Anybody want to acknowledge? Anybody ever had that happen? Okay, hopefully that's all of us, right? Not hopefully that's all of us. I don't wish that upon you. But if we're all alive, it happens, right? See, the truth is for all of us, every one of you could come up here and tell a story. That would be gossip, so we're not going to do that, right? About how somebody did something to us. Um, And wouldn't, wouldn't you agree that what they did to us what they did to you shaped you somehow. Like it affected your life. It, it does something to you. What they did to you and me, to us, whatever it is, that wouldn't you also agree that our response to what they do to us also shapes our lives on a big level, in a big way. And, and so you would probably agree that when it comes to grudge holding, right? Isn't it kind of one of life's guilty pleasures? Don't we like sort of like? There's something in us that's like sort of enjoys. I have a right to be mad at somebody. We like our rights, right? And one of the things we do in terms of holding, holding a grudge is we fantasize about what would happen if we ran into them on the street and the circumstances and how we would say certain things to them, right? Some of you don't just fantasize. Like you like you talk it through with your spouse at home. Like, man, if I ever run into them, this is what I'm going to say, and they're going to get a piece of my mind, right? You'd, you'd fantasize about telling them off somewhere, right? If I could just give them a piece of my mind. Am I alone in the room, or do you understand what I'm saying, right? We think about the that what that looks like in fact it looks a little bit like this you know you're out in public somewhere and you're just walking along just doing what you normally do not not expecting anything just enjoying the day and you look up and the person who has wronged you is headed is walking toward you and they're already too close to avoid like otherwise you would you'd probably do something to try to avoid them right and they're way too close now, so you, you can't pretend not to see them. And so uh, you just, you get, you get close to them, and you stop, they stop, you look at each other, and then that, all that goes through your mind. And suddenly, out of nowhere, you're given the, the speaking ability of a Billy Graham, right? Like, and you just perfectly articulate to this person what they have done wrong. I mean, it's a, it's a whopper of a speech. I mean, it's just it, like it's, it is so well said. Like when you think through it, you're like, I'd say this. Ooh, that's a good point. Man, oh, that's a good point. And so you go all Charlie Sheen on them right there in the middle of Ingalls or Walmart or wherever you're at, right? I mean, it's just amazing what you do. Now, keep in mind, this is our fantasy. So we, we like to, in that fantasy, if you're with me, right, we, we, we also in that fantasy somehow all of our closest friends and everybody that knows about that situation happens to be at Walmart in that moment, right? And they're all gathered around, standing, watching the conversation, right? Y'all just thought you were weird, okay? And they and they begin, they they start cheering you on, and they're like, "Yeah, that's right," you know. Preach it, sister. Preach it, brother. Right? 
that had to hurt, right? They're just cheering you on. And then you're about to get to the end of that speech. And right when you get towards the end, that person that you've said this to that did you so wrong, they're starting to, their lips quivering a little bit, and they're starting to cry just a little bit. And then they start to say the words that you've always wanted them to say to you. You've always just wanted them to say, I'm sorry. But before they can get it out of their mouth, what do you do? You just turn on your heels and just walk away. Right? It's our fantasy, right? We just, we just, we just really want to get them back. Now, some of you, you're like, well, my fantasy includes a little physical action. Okay? That's, okay, that's, that's, we don't need to go there. Okay? It's not any kind of knocking somebody out or anything like that. Hopefully you don't get there. Maybe you start to go there, but hopefully you take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and go, no, that would not be correct, right? But doesn't that feel good? We, th- we talk through that. Like some of you, when I was saying all that, you thought of someone. Like you relived that, and there was something in you that actually kind of enjoyed it, right? Right? Okay. And it feels good. Holding a grudge feels good. And here, here's what the question becomes then off that. Does it really work? Does holding a grudge, does getting even, it might feel good for a while, but does it really work? Some of us toss and turn over things that have happened a long time ago. But the grudge, it just doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't help you. Maybe we can look at the cross today and get rid of bitterness and get forgiveness even for ourselves. You see, God has a great plan for each of us. And some of us are just so chain-linked to the past and that hurt that we can't let go of so that we can grab hold of what God has for us in the present and for our future. It keeps us from moving forward. Can't pursue what God has for you. And when you hold unforgiveness towards someone, the person that hurts you, uh, the, well, the, the person that's hurt the most is just you. You know, you've heard the saying, um, not forgiving someone is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die, right? I mean, it's just, it's just killing you, right? And the cross tells us that there is hope, there is a God in heaven who can help us release the grip of that grudge, to break the chains of the past, be free from what they did to you, and for you to be free of the things you've done to others. Because we've got to throw that in there too, right? Because that's where this goes in the end, is understanding what we've done. And while I tell you the story of the cross, I want you to resist thinking, because a lot of people do this, that what they have done, what I have done, trumps the, the cross. That God can't forgive me for what I've done, much less me forgiving somebody else for what they've done. Somehow your sin outweighs the cross. Jesus is far more powerful than what somebody has done to you or anything that you've done. His love is bigger, and we see that in the cross. So let's start here. We're going to start with the cross. It's an it's interesting symbol, most recognized symbol, but as we look at history... And what we know from the cross, from a historical perspective, okay, the, the cross and how Rome crucified people. Remember, Rome's the, the ones who crucified Jesus, right? 
It was their system of execution. They were the regime that crucified Jesus Christ, particularly the Eastern Legion of Rome. So what, what, what do you think would be the way to figure out how they crucified Jesus? Well, you'd look at history and, and all the evidence and, that you have, and you'd go, well, this is the way they crucified people in the Eastern Legion of Rome during this time period. Okay? And so what's interesting is how the cross has been portrayed throughout history actually differs a little bit from how Rome crucified people. Okay? For example, we know in the Eastern Legion of Rome, they didn't crucify people on a cross that looked like the cross that was up here a minute ago, the lowercase t, right? It, that's what we typically associate with, nothing wrong with that symbol. That is the symbol that people recognize. I'm not telling you to go throw away all your crosses, right? And some of you are, like, getting uncomfortable already to me just talking about that, right? It is, it is a symbol of the cross that we associate with our faith, and it's a good thing, okay? But, but actually, the, the lowercase t is not what the cross that the Eastern Legion would have used. It would have been a capital T is what it would have looked like, okay, which is what we're going to portray here this morning. And so, for example, um, um, like you see in the movie movies, like Jesus carrying the whole like this part and the top part of the cross beam, which is they wouldn't have done that either. And, and I'm going to have these guys just, Jeremy's going to bring this uh, cross piece up. I want you to actually get in your mind, this is size, height, everything that you would have found in the Eastern Legion. This would have been the cross beam. It would have been notched out like this, and it would have went up on top. He would have just carried this piece and they would have set it in this notch. And it would look like that. Okay? Which is interesting to me because I had great respect for Mel Gibson and the way he did Passion of the Christ, even resurrecting the Aramaic language, or the dead language, to use the film to make it accurate. But yet, for dramatic purposes, this isn't as dramatic as the cross way up in the air um, as we typically think of the cross. Um, but, but carrying that full thing is also inconsistent with what we know about history. So, so how Rome, cru- Rome crucified people is that this bottom piece, this, this beam on the bottom called the stipes, okay, stayed in, gr- in the ground the whole time, okay? It would be in the ground up on the hill, and they would just, this piece would go back and forth, okay? And it, there was this cross, cross beam. It was called the patibulum. That's what they would refer to it as. And that's what Jesus, in all likelihood, carried to, ca- to Calvary. Um, so this is how the Eastern Legion of Rome crucified people. Um, they would have nailed him to this and lifted him up and put him in the notch, Okay? And so some differences, possibly little variations there in what could be. Sometimes there was a little, you'd almost call it a seat, but it wasn't really a seat. It was just a little angled piece that would, in your mind, and it would allow you to to rest just a little bit, maybe if you could get any kind of grip to it. Um, Because the idea is they wanted you to suffer as long as possible, right? This is the worst form of, 
death you could have at the time. You'd suffer for hours, and what actually killed you was the asphyxiation, the suffocation, as you tried to lift yourself up to get a breath. So it's, it's a constant struggle of your own strength. You've been beaten senselessly, and now you're trying to lift yourself up to get a breath. And so you're fighting to stay alive, but there's, they're not going to let you. And so it would prolong this for a long period of time. But there, there might have been that crude little seat uh, called a sedicula that would have went on there. Um, was one of the variations you might have seen in the Eastern Legion of Rome. Um, but this isn't as important as of what this looks like as the event actually happened, and we know it happened in history. And even those who argue against Christianity can't deny, and most of them who have got that point don't, that the event, there was a man named Jesus that lived that was crucified by Rome during this time period. All the evidence is there, Okay. But the most significant um, difference in this, uh, to me, is just the height of it, of what's portrayed, is, is how tall this is versus what you see in the movies being portrayed, um, the cross being 15, 20, 24 feet high in the air as they would lift them up. Um, it's inconsistent with what the Eastern Legion of Rome, how they crucified people. It would be five to six feet from the ground, um, and the reason they did this is they wanted to make crucifixion very, very personal, not up high away from you, but wanted you to be able to walk right up and look at this person, look them in the eye to see it clearly, what was going on with this person, wanted you to see it, feel it, hear it, because they knew once you experienced someone dying on a cross that you loved like that, that you would never forget it. Never, ever. It was that horrific. The psychological message of the kingdom of Rome, uh, of the kingdom of Rome that they were sending, whenever they crucified people, is, is this. If you don't bend your knee and submit yourself to Rome, this will be you also. And it was powerful, memorable, imprinted message to anyone who saw the crucifixion. But the, the day that Jesus was crucified... The kingdom of Rome wasn't the only kingdom sending a message that day. That's the wonderful thing. No, there was a far greater kingdom, far greater message. That kingdom was the kingdom of God. And we know, and that's obvious, just in what, how the cross is looked at today versus what they used the cross for. I mean, Jesus totally stripped them of the, the power they used the cross for and gave it a totally different meaning. Just, just Jesus, that one guy. The kingdom of God was far greater. The message of the kingdom of God was this. Come on, get close. Get face-to-face with the Savior of the world. Come face-to-face, eye-to-eye with the Savior of the world. Been battered, spit upon, beaten, punched, now crucified. And when you understand what's going on here, when you come face-to-face, eye-to-eye with Jesus on the cross, it's something you'll never forget. Not ever. And so what the scriptures teach, when we come face to face with the story of the cross, that all of us have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. If you've been around church, you've heard that so many times. It's true. But yet, the beautiful part of that is, is while we were yet sinners, Christ died 
for us. Do you get the implications of that? While we were in our sin, while we were still sinners, he died for us. We hadn't made it right already. We hadn't cried and apologized standing in Walmart with all of our friends around, right? While we were still in that position, he died for us so we could experience his forgiveness. The Bible would go on to marvel to say how great a love the Father has lavished upon us that we would be called sons and daughters of God. Let's look at Romans 5, 11, or 5 verse 1 through 11, and we'll look at Romans 12, and then we'll do the Lord's Supper together. Romans 5, 1 through 11 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's by faith. Nothing else saves you. It's your faith in Christ. It's, it's, it's his, your faith in his work for you. That's your part in it. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's it. That's what the scripture says. I had a conversation with somebody just this week of going back over keeping laws and keeping certain things that you have to do in addition to that. No, that's not what the Bible says. It's faith alone and Christ alone. Having been justified by faith, just says it right there. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in, the, in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations, tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Right? Your sin and the things you do wrong can't trump Christ's work on the cross. How much more, if we were dead to sin, how much more alive in Christ we are? Because that's so much more powerful. So imagine, just for a second, imagine what it would have been like that Good Friday to walk up and see this face-to-face with the Savior. The Savior of the world. What would it have been like to be there and walk up and look him in the eyes and he knows that you know why he's there? Could you imagine that? Do you think you'd ever walk away and forget that? 
The reason it's important to remember that and imagine that is because in a very real sense, you were there that day. We all were. The cross isn't reserved for 2,000 years ago. It wasn't an event for just those people who were standing there that day. The cross is timeless. The cross is personal. And what this means is is that God's grace has come to you. God's grace, his mercy is available to you. His forgiveness is extended to you. And I don't care what it is you've done. I've had that conversation with so many people, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. I don't have to. God knows exactly what happened, and he says over and over again in his word, you can be forgiven. You can be, it doesn't matter. You can be forgiven. The only thing you can't be forgiven of is rejecting the gospel and not accepting what he's done for you. You can't, he's not going to make you do it. There is no sin that trumps death sin that trumps Jesus' death on the cross. And what it means for you is that God looks at you once you embrace the cross and put your faith in Jesus, understand who Jesus is. God looks at you and says, you're forgiven. You get my righteousness. You get my holiness. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're forgiven. And when we get that, when we understand and we receive that righteousness, there's this shift that takes place in our hearts. It, it, it changes you. You know how big I am on that. Like you're like, oh gosh, here he goes into that speech again. But, but the, I'm just adamant about getting rid of this whole deal of traditional walk an aisle, pray a prayer, doesn't matter what you do through the week, come to church on Sunday. As long as you pray that prayer, get baptized, join a church, man, you're good. You can keep living like you're living, but you're saved, and once you're saved, always saved, it's all good. There's no change. You didn't get what you thought you you had, okay? You just didn't get it. When when it happens, there's change. God God's grace and forgiveness is so overwhelming that God's grace and forgiveness doesn't just come to us, but it, when it hits us, it begins to flow out of us. Like it's just not something for me. When when we get it and His grace hits us, it's so overwhelming. There's so much of it. You want me to get a little traditional? My cup overflows, right? Amen, right? So it, it, you can't contain all that. If you really get it, you're not going to be able to contain it. It's going to spill over, okay? We we're, we don't just get forgiveness. We become distributors of forgiveness. We don't just get grace. We become distributors of grace. We're reconciled. Another place of Scripture says you, you've been reconciled, so therefore you're to be a reconciler. You're therefore an ambassador of Christ. You've been reconciled and given the ministry of reconciliation. Not that you can save anybody, but you're now that agent of Christ who goes out and tells everybody about what he did for them so they can know the message and hear it, right? We are distributors of God's grace and forgiveness. We don't like to distribute that, do we? We, we like to distribute grace because grace can be this. 
I'm not going to do anything to you. I can walk away. We think that's a great form of grace, right? But actually extending forgiveness is a bigger form of grace. There's a shift that takes place, and that's what leads us to communion today, to the Lord's Supper. Romans 12:17 says, "Never pay back evil for evil to anyone." You don't have that on your mirror at home, do you? It's like your life verse, right? Nobody's like, "Yes, I love that verse." It's important. Note that it doesn't just actually call what they did to you evil, right? But if you get them back, then what you're doing is evil, right? We like just the one-sided, what they're doing is evil. If I get them back, that's not evil. That's just revenge. That's just getting even, right? But if you get them back, what you're doing, you're, we're not saying that what, in this either. That verse says what they did was evil. It's not saying what they did isn't a big deal, that it doesn't matter, that it wasn't wrong. You know, we think if we forgive somebody, we're letting them off the hook, right? We think we're, they're getting away with it. If I don't do something, they're just going to get away with it. We think if, we, if I forgive them, then I'm just saying what they did is okay. No, you're not. You're just not repaying their evil with evil, Okay? You're not saying what they didn't what they did isn't a big deal. And what the Bible says again is that what they did to you is wrong. And not denying what they did, dealing with it. But the Bible is saying, here's what you gotta understand. There's a different pathway, there's a different way to handle this. In Romans 12, 17, 18 it says, Never pay back evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Check out that word peace. I love that in there. Because what Romans doesn't say here is to live in partnership with all people. Okay? He's saying, as far as it depends on live at peace. So, like, say you're in business, right? You do a business deal with somebody. Somebody steals from you. Somebody rips you off. The... the they, the business deal goes bad, and they wrong you in that, right? As a Christ follower, it doesn't mean you just brush it off and go, okay, I forgive you, let's do another deal. Now, that's just dumb, okay? There's no wisdom in the Bible that says you're supposed to do that, right? I mean, you might give them a second, third chance, but at some point, as Rocky would say, got used, used to mentor me, if somebody's getting your goat, move your goat, Right? Like, that's just being smart, right? There's wisdom in that. Proverbs, read some of that, right? Don't keep going back to the same thing. You be at peace with all men. It doesn't mean you have to be in partnership with all people. Okay? You don't just go back and, thank you, sir, may I have another? You don't have to do that, okay? That's not what Christian is. That's not being a doormat, okay? Now, what it's saying here is you be at peace with all people, with all men, as long as it depends on you, not in partnership. Romans 12, 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Now, let me ask you a question. Based on this verse, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for, the, for God's wrath. Based on this verse, whose job is it to avenge you? It's a simple question. God's. It's the Lord's job to, to avenge you. Now, second question. This is a trick question, okay? I'm just letting you know up front. When you avenge yourself, whose job are you assuming? God's, right? And we're terrible at taking on the role of God, right? Do your part to forgive and let God do his part to avenge. It's pretty simple. When we say it, right? Hard to do, I understand, because we, we get away from church and reading our Bible, and all of a sudden we start giving ourselves this good logical explanation for why it's absolutely right. would actually make God pleased if I would be an agent of his wrath, right? Romans twelve twenty one, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Which means you have a choice whether or not to be overcome by evil. And and the way you're overcome by evil is is because of the evil they did to you is to hold a grudge and pay it back with evil, right? You lash out in revenge, you try to avenge yourself. And you, you could do that, but then you probably become overcome by evil. Like it starts to tear you down, right? But Jesus himself modeled right here, not this one actually, but right on the cross, right? Not being overcome by evil that we had done to him. Because sin is, what the definition is, it's, it's an offense to a holy God. It's, it's, it's against his holiness. Sin is, a, is something we have done against God, okay? Rather, he provided forgiveness on the cross. That's where, where you start is embracing the forgiveness Jesus has for you. And when you understand how this applies to you, then we should much easier, if we call ourselves Christians and we believe the Bible, it should be easier for us to turn and be at peace with all men and forgive people and overcome them with good, not evil. And what I'd like to do before we go into the Lord's Supper is just sit in that for just a, just a minute, okay? That, that Jesus died for us knowing the worst about us, still loved us enough to die for us, knowing all that stuff, knowing all the sins you would ever commit through your whole life. No matter how bad it was. And today, after we've celebrated Christmas, we just came through that, we should remember what he did because we just celebrated his birth. But ultimately, his birth, he came to go to the cross. It was the divine plan from the foundations of the, of the earth to, to die for us so that he could redeem mankind for his glory, for our good, Right? So the Bible wants us to remember. That's why Jesus would say in, in Scripture, do this in remembrance of me. It's why we call the Lord's Supper an ordinance of the church. It's because Jesus said, do this in the church. And you saw the early church do that. 
It's always been done. Baptisms, Lord's Supper, are ordinances of the church that we are to do. It's important. When we, when we stop thinking about this, we need the gospel every day. You know, you hear me say that a lot. Because when we forget, then we start becoming those people that's overcome by evil. When we forget what Jesus has done for us. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day before we go out and preach it to other people, right? We, we just don't need to forget the forgiveness we've been given so that we can start to forgive others. One of the ways we are told to remember his death on the cross is through communion or what we call the Lord's Supper. We're going to do that, but let's just focus on the cross and what Jesus did for us in light of our sin. And so I'm, I want you to focus on this. We're going to have a time of prayer here for just a moment before we go into the Lord's Supper. But what I want you to do is first focus on, the, on, on Jesus and him on the cross and what he died to, to give you and why he would do that. And just have a time of thankfulness before this year is out to the Lord and just thank him for that. And then maybe there's someone in light of that that you need to forgive. Maybe there's someone you need to get forgiveness from that you have hurt. And maybe you would just take a moment to pray and say, God, help me in being at peace with, with whoever that is. Whatever step I need to take, maybe I need to seek out counsel, maybe I need to have some talk to somebody and figure out how I need to reconcile this deal as long as it depends on me because it takes the other willing party to make it reconcilable, right? But you can be at peace. To maybe pray and make a plan to get that done in light of the cross. So let's take a moment and pray and ask for God's help in this. I'm, um, forgive, forgive others so you can enjoy fully what we're about to do in the Lord's Supper. So I'm just going to give you a, a moment of, to pray by yourself, then I'll come in and finish our prayer, and then we'll go into the Lord's Supper.
Father, thank you for your divine plan that as you sat before the foundations of the world, you sat there, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that you, there's this plan for our redemption, knowing we were going to fall. but loving us enough to, to put that plan in, pl- in place. So, Father, help us to keep our eyes on this symbol of the cross, not for the cross's sake, but for your Son's sake. That that would remind us as we see that. Everywhere we see it, it it's, it's everywhere in our, in our world. We see crosses. Father, would we just be reminded what your Son did for us? Would we trust the work he did on the cross for us? Would we have faith in what he has done for us? Father, and and help us to have faith and trust who you say you are. Trust what your role is in the world and not overstep ours. May we trust you to do what you say you'll do. May we be obedient enough to do what we're supposed to do. And so, Father, thank you for these moments we're going to have and take the Lord's Supper. Um, may we just love others as Christ has loved us. And may this just remind us of that and empower us to go out and do that through your Holy Spirit. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to go into a time of taking the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read a scripture to us. But he called us to do this in remembrance of him. And so as you, I think the band's going to come on up and play while we do this too. But um, just before being crucified, Jesus had um, a meal with his disciples and told them to do this. You know, the Last Supper, it's... um, why we call this the Lord's Supper. It is an ordinance of the church to remember and proclaim Jesus until he returns. So 1 Corinthians 11, 23-32 says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. This is Paul talking, um, <coughs> who had an encounter with Christ, if you know his conversion story. Um, so he's saying he got this directly from the Lord that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Okay, so I want to make a comment right there because a lot of people, how I view this, I, I when I read that, I go, who who's worthy? What's an unworthy manner? Well, there's none of us worthy. Not even me, right? It's only by the blood shed for me that covers my sins. It's only through Christ and what he did on the cross that I am worthy of of anything good, anything from the Lord. And so to do this in a worthy manner means 
I recognize Christ died on the cross in my place for my sin. I'm trusting His work for me. And my life has been changed because of it. So that if I really have Christ, then He covers that and I'm worthy. It's meaning my faith has been, I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. That makes you worthy. There's nothing you can do to make yourself worthy. So that's, that's where it's at. This is, this is something that Christians do, people who have placed their faith in Christ. If you're not there yet, it's okay. There's no judgment there towards you from us. That's something between you and the Lord that hopefully you will take steps toward, but we're here to help you if you need that. But um, this goes on to say, a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So it's making a separation between those who are his and those who are not. So this is for those who are his. Um, And so... We want to take a moment to examine ourselves. Obviously, if we believe this, if there's known sin in our lives, we want to confess that sin, get forgiveness for it, turn from it, not just say, I'm sorry, God, and then make plans this afternoon to go back to it, but to, to truly repent, say, I'm turning from that sin. Give me the power by your Holy Spirit not to go back to that. Here's the steps I'm going to take to make sure I'm not in those situations, that those things don't continue. I'm going to do these things. God, by your power, will you help me do that? I always throw out parents. You determine if your child is ready for this or not. You know them. Um, so we'll, in a moment, we're going to serve both of the elements to you. So just hold on to that, and then we'll take it together. Okay? Uh, as I lead us in a, in a scripture and a prayer for each of those sacraments. Um, so I'm going to ask a, a couple people, Scott Morgan, and um, I just keep wanting to say Mr. Farmer. Um, Stephen, <laughs> I've got Jessica in my head. I'm looking at you going, Jessica, but you're not Jessica. Um, sorry. Um, and Ken, would you come up here and help us this morning? Um, And uh, we'll gather over here at the table. I'll uncover those. We'll pass those out. They're going to play for us for just a moment. And then we'll take those together, okay?